Hello and welcome to the Funds Fan Podcast, hosted by Kyle Caldwell and Sam Benstead. Before we get started, a reminder to our listeners that our podcast will soon look and sound a little different. In the next few weeks, the Richard Hunter interview will be moving to the IR YouTube channel as a video-based series with Funds Fan becoming a new weekly show called On The Money, hosted by Becky O'Connor and myself. We'll both be looking at the biggest news stories and how they can affect your investments. If you're already a subscriber to our podcasts, you won't need to do a thing. The new show will appear automatically in your podcast app. Becky and myself will also be speaking to a range of voices in the world of finance to get their expert views on funds, market trends, pensions, and the things to watch out for that could make a big difference to you and your investments. And we want you to get involved as much as possible. Join the conversation on Twitter at IIOnTheMoney or send us a question to otm at ii.co.uk. In the meantime, let's get started, Sam, on the final funds fan. As usual, we've got a full manager interview. So who have you spoken to, Sam? This week, our guest was Ewan Markson-Brown. He works for Crux, a boutique asset manager, and there he manages the Asia X Japan Fund. You may know his name because he was quite a big fund manager at Bailey Gifford before joining Crux about a year ago. He was the manager of the Pacific Horizon Investment Trust and some other emerging market funds. So do stick around for that interview. He's a really interesting guy and shared lots of insights on emerging markets and Asia in particular. Given this is the last funds fan, we thought we would break from tradition for the first half of the podcast. And instead of discussing our take on news that's been happening in relation to funds and investment trusts, that we would instead draw on our experience to run through our top 10 tips for fund and investment trust success. We hope they're helpful and will also have longevity. So it doesn't matter whether you're listening to the podcast um, as it's been published or in a couple of months or in a year or so's time. So Sam, we're going to split it into to do five each. So I'll pass the baton to you to start off. Thanks, Kyle. So my first fund investing top tip is to not ignore passive funds. Most active funds, particularly in the US or global markets, fail to beat their index. And that's something I found out the hard way over the past couple of years. Lots of my active funds actually didn't beat their benchmark and I would have been better off owning a cheap passive fund. So I've moved some money into passive funds. It's something I wish I had done earlier. And I think all investors should take them very seriously, particularly because you can get super low fees, 0.06% to track the US market is incredibly cheap. And because most fund managers fail to beat the index there, it really is a no-brainer to have at least some of your money invested in passive funds. So be humble, stick with an index, and um, consider that as a core allocation. I agree with the points you just made, Sam. Of course, with active funds, there's no guarantees that the fund manager will outperform. And the reality is that the majority do not deliver consistent outperformance. There are some really good fund managers out there, but they are hard to find from the outset. In addition, the way the fund manager invests can also fall out of favour, and it can fall out of favour for reasons that are outside their control, rather, rather than it being down to them making some bad investment decisions. 
Personally, I invest in both active and passive. My stocks and shares ISA is invested in a couple of active funds. And my pension is mostly in passive. With my pension, over a 40-year time period, I'm happy to simply own the world via mainly having passive exposure to global shares. Whereas with my ISA, um, I'd like to be a bit more adventurous with more exposure to technology shares and emerging markets via active funds. However, whether you buy an active or passive fund, it's really important to keep an eye on costs, which is the only thing that investors can control from the outset. This is the first of my five tips. It is easy to overlook costs, especially when it is quoted as a percentage. But the reality is, over the long term, even a relatively small percentage difference can make a big difference to your overall returns. The average fund costs around 0.85% to 1% a year via the ongoing charges figure. There's, there's, of course, nothing wrong with paying a premium if the outcome is good. So charges are not the be-all or end-all. But with active funds, the thing to remember is that if the fund does underperform, then you're still charged. So it's important to keep an eye on performance and make an assessment yourself about whether that fee is justified. And with passive funds, in, in relation to charges, it's a case of seeking out the cheapest that you can find for the respective index that you want to track, as well as also taking a look at the tracking error. I just add to that on fees, what you see on a fact sheet is the ongoing charge figure or OCF. It's about 0.85 for the average fund. But actually, the bill for transaction costs, so when fund managers buy or sell companies, is passed on to investors, but they aren't really told about it. Um, so that means the fee you see might not be the fee you pay. So be careful with investors that trade a lot and actually look for some fund managers that don't do much in terms of activity. So Terry Smith, for example, he charges 1.04% for his Fundsmith equity fund hardly ever trade. So actually his total cost figure for investors can be lower than funds that have got a cheaper OCF. So that's just something to watch out for um, when you're considering fees. My next tip is to look at investment styles. So sometimes a whole basket of funds will be doing well. They might be investing in growth shares or, or value shares or a certain part of the market like oil stocks or mining stocks and performance looks brilliant. But actually, that's just because of the area they're investing in rather than the skill of the fund manager. So dig a bit deeper, compare different funds with a different with a similar investment style and try and figure out which one is actually skillful and which one is just in the right place at the right time. That's also true when funds are falling in value. So it could just be a style thing. Again, it could be interest rates going up. It could be geopolitics. So just because a fund is going down doesn't mean it's badly managed. So again, do a bit more research, look at similar funds and try and figure out if a fund manager is adding value or if they're just caught up in a hot theme or a, um, or a falling theme. I think it's particularly important with um, specialist funds. They can very quickly uh, blow hot or blow cold. Um, so, you know, the rewards and risks for buying at a good or a bad time you know, can be great. I mean, among the specialist funds that investors can buy, I mean, there's lots of them, but just to summarise, you know, you can buy single country emerging market funds such as, you know, China, India, Vietnam. Um, there's obviously specialist uh, biotech funds and also um, some funds that just invest in uh, one commodity such as gold uh, or oil. 
in my view, um, with specialist funds, it's important to not simply buy and hold. Um, instead, be prepared to quit a losing position. And even if you time your entry well, it, it, it's important to keep a close eye on those paper gains and consider banking profits when sentiment swings back the other way. And of course, such specialist funds, they should form only a small part of a diversified portfolio in order to uh, reduce risk. Looking under the bonnet and understanding the strategy of a fund or an investment trust is uh, vitally important. This is my second tip. Among the things to size up are how the fund manager invests, what he or she is investing in, and what the investment objective is. Um, by looking at those three things, that will help um, determine whether the fund fits in with your attitude to risk, which um, is an important uh, thing to consider when buying a fund. If you don't understand the strategy, I think the best thing to do is to, is to steer clear. Um, for me personally, I've written about absolute return funds over the years, and I've also interviewed many fund managers that manage such funds, but I think they're too complicated. So I wouldn't personally invest in one as a DIY investor. I also wouldn't touch absolute return funds. Not only are they very complicated, but also they generally haven't done that well at protecting investors' money. The other areas I'd steer clear of would be private lending investment trusts. It's potentially quite a murky area. Lending to you know, small companies that, that might go bust. It's just you know outside of my area of expertise. And I also wouldn't touch ETFs that synthetically track markets, so using derivatives to um, gain exposure to a commodity or a, or a certain stock market. This also includes cryptocurrency, so that's an area I would also avoid. Next up, don't chase fund performance. When you see the year's list of the best performing funds at the end of the year, resist the urge to rush out and buy them all. This is because investor psychology normally leads to too much optimism and too much pessimism. Pessimism. So the best funds can often go on to be the worst funds the next year and the worst funds can actually go on to be the best funds. My tip would be to try and use the erratic nature of investors to your advantage and actually pay more attention to the year's worst funds rather than the best funds. Of course, the top funds can keep doing well and the bottom funds can keep underperforming but it's just something to pay attention to. I think when looking at those um, funds that produce strong performance and are you know, at the top of the league tables of their respective sectors, it's important to remember that those are past returns and they've went to other investors rather than yourself. And um, as you mentioned, Sam, strong performance can be a warning sign uh, that the strategy is about to fall out of form. My next tip is to avoid buying too many funds uh, the first point I want to make is the more funds you buy, the harder it is to keep on top of how they are performing and whether changes need to be made. So um, I think it makes sense to invest in a manageable number of different fund types and um, that will help you reduce risk. While at the same time, you want to avoid diversifying too much. If you have more than 20 funds, for example, it's a good idea to take a look at them all and ensure that each one is pulling its respective weight in terms of performance and um, how it's investing. You want to ensure that you know the funds that you own, they are all sufficiently different from the other funds that you have in the portfolio. Otherwise, your portfolio risks looking like the market. Um, and over diversification um, or diversification as um, it's been coined, it's a pitfall that investors uh, need to avoid. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that point. You see some investors treat their portfolios like a, a shopping list and they go out and buy everything that looks exciting and, and shiny and new and they end up with too many funds that they just simply can't keep track of. All this activity also increases trading fees. My next point is to be wary of investment fads. So as an example, this week or the first couple of weeks of September, there were three metaverse ETFs launched. So the metaverse is this um, digital world where people will live and communicate and um, spend money, which was all the rage last year. And the peak of that was probably when Facebook changed its name to Meta. But six months on, all these stocks have actually done terribly. Um, interest rates are going up, so nobody wants to buy the, these high-risk technology shares. But we've just seen the launch of three funds. So it's taken fund management companies about six months to launch these strategies to try and um, make money from a new investment theme. But it's too late, and it just shows that all these hot fads, they, they come and go, and actually sticking with proven investment um, investment themes or, or fund manager is often the best thing to do. It's also worth bearing in mind that um, with the biggest fund management companies, they tend to have funds across every single um, sector of the market, but um, they will be stronger in certain areas. So my next tip would be to focus on what fund firms are best at. It may be the case that they have a strong pedigree, for instance, in emerging markets or in fixed income. And another point um, I'd like to add to this is to, um, I think it's important to diversify by fund management group. Um, and the reason for that is because some fund, man fund management firms, they have an investment style that's incorporated across the whole fund range um, that you know the various fund managers manage. So if that style then falls out of favor, then you know if you own a couple of funds just with that fund manager, then the likelihood is that all your funds are going to suffer at the same time if you're only investing with that one firm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, fund managers are, are specialists in some areas. Um, for example, if you're looking for growth stocks, Bailey Giffords is the market leader, I'd say. Um, for quality shares, somebody like Lindsay Train, Fundsmith, Morgan Stanley have got great, great reputations and great funds. For value stocks, Schroders are well known for, for UK companies, especially the kind of smaller, higher growth ones. Lion Trust is a great investment house. So my next tip is to be wary of a fund manager that changes their investment approach. So the clear example of this was Neil Woodford about three years ago. He went from buying UK blue chip stocks at the start of his career to then investing in unlisted biotech shares with his um with his fund management company. We all know how that ended. And um, for me, the risk or the warning sign to investors was that he moved away from his area of competence. And um, that's something you really want to be careful about. So a good fund, fund manager will clearly set out their investment process and stick to it. And any deviation from that warrants deep analysis. And when a fund manager uh, leaves to um, or, you know, jump ships to join another firm or you know retires, it's important to take a look at whether the approach is going to be broadly the same or exactly the same as it was under the previous management. If that approach changes or you know, or indeed the strategy changes, then it's no longer potentially the same funds or trust that you bought at the outset. So um, it might then be time to, um, to wave goodbye. My final um, tip is to use the investment trust structure to its advantage. 
Um, there are various uh, quirks that investment trusts have that um, can benefit uh, private investors. Among them are the fact that um, investment trusts can trade at discounts. This offers investors the opportunity to pick up potential bargains. The next one is that um, investment trusts um, have the ability to retain 15% or up to 15% of the income generated from the portfolio each year. This is put into a revenue reserve and during years where um, dividends are challenged, uh, this reserve can then be dipped into. So overall, what it means is that investment trusts um, can then maintain or potentially increase their dividends. And this is why on the whole, um, investment trusts are much more consistent at increasing their dividends over open-ended funds, as open-ended funds are required to distribute all the income that they generate from the fund each year back to investors. Yeah, you're right, Kyle. I would say investment trusts are generally a better option for DOI investors. However, people should be wary about um, the fact that they're listed on stock exchanges. So when there is lots of market volatility, they will fall a lot further than than funds. That's because of the, the discount, obviously. But actually, there's there's something else going on there as well. Because you can see the share prices in, in real time, it can feel a lot more painful to investors because they'll, they'll see their portfolio moving up and down throughout the day. And I think a lot of people would have learned that the hard way. Over the past couple of years, there's been lots of volatility. And actually, a portfolio of, of open-ended funds would have that's been easier to manage than a portfolio of investment trusts. That said, for switched on and disciplined DIY investors, trusts really are a dream. They are a great option and we're actually really lucky to have so many in the UK. Well, that concludes our top 10 tips for investing in funds and investment trusts. I hope you found it useful. Today our guest is Ewan Martin-Brown, manager of the £120 million Crux Asia X Japan Fund. Ewan joined Crux about a year ago from Bailey Gifford, where he managed the Bailey Gifford Pacific Fund and Pacific Horizon Investment Trust. He has more than 20 years investing in Asia. Ewan, thank you very much for coming on to the Funds Fan podcast. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. So let's start with that move from Bailey Gifford. Why did you leave such a big investment house and one with a great reputation to join a boutique like Crux? Well, I, I spent the last well, over 20 years in what I think I saw great large investment houses. And I, I just decided I needed a change. I wanted to find somewhere which was smaller, more dynamic, more flexible. And, you know, I, I have always had this entrepreneurial spirit and Really, that's what Crux has allowed me to do, to just come in here, start up a new fund, get some of my old team, hire a new team, and really build a business from scratch. And you know, it's really exciting and, and, and great fun. So you, you said you kept some of your old team there. Who did you manage to bring across with you? Yeah, so there's four of us here now at Crux. Uh, we've got two of my analysts, uh, Ishan Bhatia and Ryan So, um, both of them were consultants with me when I was at Bailey Gifford. And... Uh, a great fund manager called Damien Taylor, who's ex-Martin Curry. Um, the team's sort of split across the world. So myself and Damien uh, are up here based in sunny Edinburgh, so same as, as Bailey Gifford. Uh, Ryan's down in London, but spends half his time as a roaming analyst out in Asia, uh, based on Malaysia. And Ishan's out in India. So I've got sort of people on the ground in my region, 
um, but myself and all the management responsibilities are in Edinburgh. And I just emphasize it's great to be away from all the noise, both in London, but also from the region, but also having people on the ground who you can tap into for those meetings. And just one thing that I'd emphasize is that Zoom has changed everything. Um, it's basically democratized information and flows of information. So big houses used to be the ones who got all the meetings, like management come up to London or Edinburgh, have four meetings a day and go home. Um, today, it's all Zoom-based. So however small you are, you can still get access to the analysts, to the managers um, via Zoom. And that's just been really fantastic. And I noticed that for the last two to three years uh, when I was at Bailey Gifford, I thought, well, actually, we don't need the big platforms any longer. We can do this in a much smaller shop. And has your investment style changed at all with this move? And could you just talk us through how you invest? Yeah, so no, my investment style is exactly the same as been for the last eight years, well, nine years now, uh, long-term uh, growth investor. Um, but maybe I should emphasize that what, what we really do when I say long-term growth investor. You know, I'm three to five years, we're looking at a minimum in terms of growth to double the top line and double the bottom line over a five-year period. And that's really a 15% CAGR of top and bottom line. Um, ideally, I like to do that in three, but you know, the minimum is really 15%. We divide our growth into three different buckets. And I think it's important to emphasize that many growth managers have historically just been that hyper growth. Let's go for technology companies at it and in all the rest of the market. We're more nuanced. Um, I have a bucket called velocity and acceleration, which is you know your your companies which are growing thirty to fifty percent. You know we say these are the, you know, the zero to one companies changing the existing order, the really big thematic stories of the day. Um, then we have our patient and persistent. These are your quality compounders, great businesses, great moats. The management teams all there. It's just about holding them for three, five, ten years into the future and seeing those returns compound year after year. And then my last bucket is called renewal and regeneration. And this allows us to do quite different things. And this is a bucket where possibly if a company hasn't been growing for the last five years, maybe it's out of favor, maybe the management hasn't been right, maybe they misexecuted on a business, maybe the country's out of favor. But we see a turnaround story, we see change, and most importantly, we believe the next five years is going to be materially different from the last. Um, and actually, these are going to become growth businesses again. Um, and that allows our portfolios to not only get the momentum to the upside, but can also be nimble and avoid some of the significant uh, falls in the markets uh, that we saw, especially in the last years. So that's how you invest. Can you give me a quick um, whistle-stop tour of what's in the funds with regards to you know where the companies are based and, and what they do? Yeah, so we're, we're, we're Asia X Japan. Um, so that means that we invest in every market from uh, South Korea all the way through China, Taiwan, down into Southeast Asia, India, Thailand, Philippines, Vietnam, and then over to the subcontinent uh, in, in India. Um, the majority of the portfolio at the moment in absolute terms is in China. Um, that's probably about 40% of the fund. Um, majority, about half of that, is in the Asia market, which we can talk about as sort of a newer area for me in the last few years. Um, and then if you go further south uh, into Southeast Asia, 
really Indonesia's the standout in terms of our portfolio. It's probably about 16% of the fund today. It's our largest overweight market. Uh, and it's really somewhere where and I can talk about why we think Indonesia is now in a structural bull market, despite all the noise going in the world. Uh, and then we have holdings in India um, and also smaller holdings in Korea and, and in, in Taiwan. In, in terms of the breakdown by sectors, uh, I think we're materially different to where, let's say, I was two to, two to three years ago. You know, two to three years ago, we were very heavily invested in technology, you know, 56% plus of the fund would have been technology companies. Today, that's far more nuanced. Uh, we're overweight commodities, consumer discretionary. We're actually underweight tech, especially tech hardware, um, underweight banks. So far more of a diverse view in terms of both countries, but most importantly, sectors and subsectors than we were, let's say, three years ago. And I think that's really important to understand that the world has changed post-COVID. Um, there's been dramatic change. And you can see that in geopolitics. You can see that in inflation numbers. But you can also see it in growth numbers. Different businesses are now going to survive and succeed in this new world. And, and that's why we're actually in a bear market on a global basis at the moment is that the old winners are dying. And the new winners are in the process of being born, but they're not big enough to offset uh, what's going on uh, in terms of the larger businesses of the large uh, companies. Uh, and so it's a period of heightened volatility. Um, we've been through this before. We've, we've been in this period in 2008, 2009. We were in this period in the early 2000s. Uh, and we can go back before that. Um, bear markets do end, but they're highly volatile. Um, but within bear markets, you find the new leaders of a new bull market. Um, and that is where what we're spending an awful lot of our time thinking about. Who are the new leaders for the next three, five, ten years into the future? Um, can we position with them today um, and identify them and hold them for long term? I can, I can talk about where we think these new leaders can be. Yeah, that, that would be great. So who are these you know, new leading companies and, and which are the old um leaders that you're actually refusing to own in this fund. I, I notice you don't own Alibaba or, Ten, or Tencent, so it'd be great to have some information about why you've um, avoided those big, giant Chinese internet stocks. Yeah, so and I, this, this may sound a bit simplistic, but 15 years ago, something revolutionary happened, and it was really the Apple came out with the iPhone, and no one knew that first smartphone would revolutionize the world, and that you wouldn't use your smartphone for making calls on. You'd use it to play games as a navigational device, as a, a place to buy your food, your groceries, to do your social media. That one phone cannibalized hundreds of different products. You know, your alarms disappeared, your torches disappeared, your compasses disappeared. And it created completely new ecosystems and industries and actually revolutionized how we work as well. Um, 15 years on, that one product, and obviously its replicas, created the greatest amount of wealth in human history. More market cap, more wealth, more productivity than any other product. Um, and that was fantastic. And you look at the top 10 companies 12 months ago in the world, maybe even still today, they were all linked to the smartphone. And 
if you bought any widget, you would have made a huge amount of money. So, you know, whether it was the iPhone makers or the makers of cameras that go into iPhones. And then if you made, invest in the software people, whether it was at Apple, whether it was Google, whether it was Amazon or the Alibaba's or Tencent's of this world in China. Um, that story is ending. We, we've passed the S-curve. What do I mean by an S-curve? Every product goes the early adopters, 5 10% of the market, and then you get rapid adoption as you go from effectively 20% to 56% adoption. And that's where the exciting growth phase, everything is fantastic, everyone's growing rapidly, you're beating and you're surprising your numbers. Um, and we had that plus a bit more because it was brought forward by COVID, basically from 2020 going back five years. My view on the world is smartphone growth is zero to negative going forward for the next five to 10 years. Um, the product cycle is mature. It's like going back to your notebook or your PC. There was a point where you could put more memory in it and put a faster CPU in it, but you just didn't care any longer because there was no additional program which needed the extra speed, the extra power, the extra camera. You can tell it in the iPhone. The camera is now better than human sight. What's the point of having a new camera? Um, is there additional software? So that whole market, we believe, is either slowing down or has been fully priced. Um, some markets are ahead of the curve, like China. Some developed markets are basically about to hit that wall. And there's a few emerging markets like India and Indonesia, which is still 10 years behind them. And these are still growth businesses. So everything which I think was related to the smartphone is now going through that period of, of turmoil. And that means the semiconductor industry on a global basis, but also the semiconductor industries in Korea and in Taiwan. Uh, and we're very underweight if, uh, in semiconductors generally, especially all the consumer-related semiconductors. Because we've built up huge inventory for the smartphone and sales are going to be pretty lackluster for two to three years and, until we have a new product. So that, that's my big picture view of why this recession is happening. Um, the 2000s recession was similar. That was, again, an end of the PC cycle of the early internet. 08 was more of a of a notebook cycle rolling over. Um, so we've got a, a technology cycle. But we've got a new one beginning. Um, and I think the new one began a few years ago. And I, I'm calling it the electrification of everything. You know, the last 15 years, you know, we basically called it the digitalization of everything. Um, so what's, what do I mean by this? I think the whole world continues on its trend to electrify, but really now we're going onto our transportation system. So, and it becomes, and I think it's fairly obvious to most people that in 10, 15 years, we'll all be driving electric vehicles. In fact, 90% of all new, new units will be electric. Um, I think within 10 years, 90% of new vehicles not only will be electric, but will also be autonomous. Um, and this won't go just for cars, it will go for scooters, it will go for mopeds, it will go for whatever flying vehicles start coming up. They'll be going for your vacuum cleaners. Um, and everything that you can, we used to use diesel for will become electric. And again, we've been seeing this for the last few years in our power tools. Um, you can see it in your lawnmowers. That's going to continue this electrification of everything trend. I think the electric car is really important. Um, and that's because there's 100 million units sold globally. Um, 
what's important to me is that yes that's a fraction of a billion of smartphone u- units but the value of a car is multiple folds of a smartphone a majority of a car today is basically the mechanical parts the majority value of an electric vehicle will be software and semiconductors um and this goes back to a, a fairly simple theory as of the world is that everything physical has a relationship uh, effectively in the non-physical realm. You can take a physical process and you can turn it into an electrical process via a semiconductor. And that is what we're going to do with, with a car. We're going to turn it into a semiconductor process whereby you remove the mechanical parts of a car. So, for example, braking, you don't, you don't need the physical process. It's all done electronical. Um, and that's going to really change um the value proposition of a vehicle how it's produced um uh, the value part of it you know it's more of the value is going to go software and semiconductors but most importantly we believe it's going to change the leadership um and this is where china comes becomes really exciting that china spent 20 years trying to break into the old ice vehicle market they subsidized they did jvs they stole and copied technology but they never made a car anyone wanted to drive. That's changing. And, I, and the simple numbers I'll give you, I think today about 20% of the Chinese market is a mixture between hybrid and electric. 85% of that 20% is Chinese brands. Was over the whole market, it's only about 40, 25% is Chinese brands. We think over the next decade, the Chinese local makers probably go to 60 to 70% of the Chinese market, taking market share away from foreign brands. And that's because the size of the market is the largest in the world for electric vehicles and hybrid. Um, the Chinese companies are far more innovative uh, than the rest of the world. There's more competition. Uh, and this is, becomes the largest, cheapest ecosystem in the world. And which companies like to, to profit from these themes then in the portfolio? Can we get a couple of examples of, of firms that are really well positioned for this? It's early days, and if I told you that these are going to be the long-term winners, I'd be lying. But we're building a portfolio of names which I believe some of them will definitely be long-term winners. So you've got BYD, uh, which currently is now the largest uh, builder of electric vehicles in China, with I think it's forty-five to fifty percent market share. Second largest producer of batteries globally after cattle, also in China. Um, really dominating that local market with, you know, a, a very entrepreneurial founder who, who believes in a long-term vision for the company and, and for the country in terms of that growing that local market, and most importantly, trying to sell those vehicles overseas. We've got Li Auto. This is a, a new energy vehicle startup, small company, um, not selling that many vehicles, but just launched uh, their first model, which had. Uh, came to sort of had great sales. They're launching their new SUV next month, which we are very positive on. Um, it's one of these new electric vehicle companies we think, again, could take 5 10 50% market share in China. Elsewhere, we've been in a lot of work of trying to work out who does the software. And we, we picked two names at the moment in our portfolio, Thundersoft and DSay. Um First of all, they, Thunderstop, they do the entertainment systems, the infotainment systems. So if you imagine in a car, as you have more time to spend because you're going to spend less time driving, um, 
you got more time to entertain yourself. So are you going to watch videos? Are you going to play games? Are you going to order pizza or your coffee from your car? All of these systems require more semis, require more batteries, but also require better screens, better software. Um, and we think that's going to be done outside of the automakers. So these two names uh, are leaders in China and might really benefit from this trend. Dice does something slightly different in the sense that in a standard car, you've got 100 sort of micro semiconductors all over a car. Uh, you know, you've got one controlling the brake, controlling the lights, controlling the heating on your seats. And that's really inefficient if you want to fully electric electrify a car. You're much better off getting all those semiconductors, putting them in one box, but making those semiconductors much, much better because you're controlling the whole system as, as one. And you do that because you're running off a battery and you want to save power when in a, in a classic ICE engine, you weren't really interested in power saving. You were just interested in sort of getting as many components in the car as possible. Um, and so they, they offer a whole one box solution. Um, and what, what's interesting for us is the semiconductor content in that box is going to be up five to 10x versus a normal car. The software content is going to be five to 10x. Um, but it also means that the cost of a car overall in terms of the steel metal input can actually fall over time. So, so those are a few direct names in China. But I think it's important to emphasize that unlike the last 15 years, smartphones didn't have a great impact on the real world. They, in fact, reduced the real world impact. Um, we think electric vehicles are going to be a bit different. Um, and that really comes into our commodity positions where we're, we're overweight commodities, which might sound a sort of strange place for a growth manager to be, especially when everyone's talking about a recession. Um, but we think something dramatic's changing. Um, and we're really looking at what we believe are the battery metals, copper, nickel, and lithium. Uh, and that's because when you look at uh, the move from a standardized engine to electric vehicle, when you move out, look at the move from a gas power station to solar or wind, the metal's intensity changes dramatically. And we're talking about five to 10 times more metal, uh, copper and nickel, especially in cars, in wind, in solar, than in a traditional, uh, let's say, you know, ice, diesel, cold, uh, power generation or car. Um, and this comes to a point where there hasn't been enough investment in terms of mining industries, in terms of extraction of these metals. And, and bottlenecks, we believe, are occurring. Um, and these, these markets haven't been sort of sub-GDP growth for you know, two to three decades. We think are actually going to be growing faster than GDP over at least the next 10 years. And therefore, we see significant opportunities in certain metals going forward and certain countries. Great. And just really quickly, because we're running out of time, with all this investment in China, it's you know, 40% of the portfolio, why aren't you worried about the political risk? Why aren't you worried that the government might just step in and tell one of your companies to um, you know, stop making as much money or to expand differently or you know, do different things that you might be than you might want as a, as a shareholder? Um, so I've been investing in China about 20 years. I've, I've been there multiple times most years. And um, that has always been a risk in China. Um, this is a one-party quasi-communist state, which the underlying companies are more capitalistic than anywhere else in the world. 
and the people love to be entrepreneurial, make money and innovate. But the government is always wary. And every few years, there's a big clamp down and the government's priorities change. Um, so the key thing is to make sure that you are aligned with your investments with the long-term aims of the government. Um, and the great thing is the government gives you five-year plans and 10-year plans and tells you very clearly what its long-term aims are. Um, and a few years ago, it basically told us that it was anti-monopoly, it was clamping down on the housing market and didn't really like the internet companies. And it did that because it realized that, well, I just told you that they were ex-growth. It didn't want the investment there any longer. And it's now telling you that by 2025, half of all vehicles will be hybrid PHEV, that they'll be level two autonomous uh, again by 2025, and they've given out 2030 aims. Plus, these are export markets, and they tend to be far more open to export markets than domestic markets. So maybe the, the answer is you're investing in companies which are aligned with the growth uh, dynamics of the Chinese government rather than against it. And finally, the question we ask every guest on, on the podcast, do you personally invest in the fund? Uh, yes, I do. So I, I, you know, my, my last fund was one of the best personal investments I ever made. I bought it when I joined Baby Gifford back in 2013. And um, I moved all the money that I had in that into the funds at Crux. So uh, yes, a, a very significant investment. That's all we have time for for today. As mentioned at the start of the podcast, we'll soon be launching a new weekly show called On The Money, hosted by Becky O'Connor and myself. We'll be looking at the biggest news stories and how they could affect your investments. Thank you to all our guests and contributors that have appeared on FundsFan over the past couple of years. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll join Becky and I soon. On the Money will launch in early October. Bye for now.